This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Yep, that's me, your host of Radio Parallax, which is now heard in 191 different countries. In fact, some would argue 257 different countries. Because according to www.listofcountriesoftheworld.com, there are 191 countries that are not disputed, but there are partially disputed countries that do total up to 257. And we do note that if Radio Parallax was to have to commit itself to, which is the more legitimate number, we're probably going to have to opt for the lower one. Because when this correspondent looked up one of the, quote, disputed, unquote, countries of the world, we uncovered Navasaw Island, which is apparently an uninhabited mile-and-a-half-long piece of limestone located between Jamaica and Haiti. It is claimed by the U.S. as part of its territory. Haiti also makes the same claim. We have to say its claim to be a country is pretty lame, being that it, well, it used to be a center of guano mining, but that apparently played out in 1898, and it used to have a lighthouse, but the, <laughs> the U.S. Coast Guard apparently shut it down and dismantled it back in 1996. So if that's a country, I'm the Prince of Wales. We're going to have fun on today's program, speaking with one of our old pals, the legendary comedian Mr. Philip Proctor, he of the Firesign Theater. I have to admit, Phil's kind of an easy guest to do. You toss out a few questions and just stand back. Yes, he is a bit of a force of nature. We'll be dealing with that force later on in today's program. At any rate, let's begin today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History, the date in question being the 11th of July. It was on July 11th in 1914 that American baseball great Babe Ruth debuted in the major leagues as a pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. Which leads to one of our favorite baseball quotes, which has been attributed to either Ty Cobb or Tris Speaker, who, upon learning that Ruth was going to move to the outfield and try to become a regular member of the team, said, quote, Ruth should stick to pitching, unquote. We couldn't find it on Google, so we're not sure it's a legitimate quote. If you know, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. Moving right along, July 11, 1938, the Mercury Theater debuted on the American Airwaves. Led by Orson Welles, the show is best remembered for its 1938 radio broadcast of The War of the Worlds, a science fiction drama about a Martian invasion in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. The program sparked panic among listeners who believed it was a real news broadcast. We would refer you to our archives for a discussion about that War of the Worlds broadcast, which we aired on more than one Halloween. I want to further add, it was our great pleasure to have interviewed Norman Lloyd, still active at, I guess, age 96, who was a member of the Mercury Theater and was able to tell us some entertaining stories about Orson Welles, Charlie Chaplin, and Buster Keaton, among others. All right, and from the Idiot File, we have this one. July 11th, 1962. American scuba diver Fred Baldassare becomes the first person to swim the English Channel underwater. And you know what? They can never take that away from Fred Baldassare. July 11th, 1974, more than 6,000 life-sized terracotta figures of warriors were unearthed by Chinese archaeologists near the ancient Chinese capital of Xi'an. The three-acre burial site had been created about 
206 BC to guard the tomb of the first Qin emperor. It has now become a primo tourist attraction in China, which um, this correspondent was privileged to visit some years back. It's pretty cool. Although I did note that the Chinese government, in their foresight, seemed to have removed all of the weapons which the warriors had been buried with. Where those have been stashed, we don't know. And finally, Red Letter Day and the Equality of the Sexes. It was on July 11th in 1981 when, in, in the United States, Neva Rockefeller became the first woman ordered to pay alimony to her former husband. And yes, we're as surprised as you that it took as late as 1981 for that to become a legal precedent. Our quote of the day, and this one's recycled, because when we find a quote that we really like, we like to use it more than once. This one comes from E.B. White, who said, Analyzing humor is like dissecting a frog. Few people are interested, and the frog dies of it. Our quip of the day, and I don't believe we have used this one before, but probably should have, comes from Voltaire, who once said, If it's too silly to be said, it can always be sung. Can you find an illustration for that, Mr. McMillan? Jeepers, creepers, where'd you get those peepers? Jeepers, creepers, where'd you get those eyes? Smartly done. All right, our stat of the day is, according to the Pew Research Center, that the U.S. is less concerned about climate change than any other part of the world. 40% of Americans view it as a major threat, compared with 54% of people elsewhere. Let's jump right into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week a few weeks back for the Love Train. After Prague's subway system announced plans to set aside special train carriages for singles who are seeking a soulmate. And that segues rather nicely into the fact that it was a bad week a few weeks back for doomed romances. After apparently a confused young moose bull became obsessed with a real-life metal statue of a moose in a Colorado garden, repeatedly nuzzling it and trying to mount it. And finally, it was an ugly week three weeks ago for, well, we're not quite sure for what. Behavior in general, I guess. When a man, Jeffrey Allen Jones, was arrested in Sacramento on suspicion of spearing a vehicle. Although I guess technically the legal charge was suspicion of assault with a deadly weapon. The story is that officers were called to the area of Auburn Boulevard and Annandale Lane by a citizen who said a man standing in the road had thrown a spear at a passing vehicle. According to the police activity log, the spear struck the front fender and became lodged in the vehicle. And you know, that's an item that just cries out for more detail. When we have those details, we'll pass them along. Actually, about time we open up a debunking department, Mr. McMillan. I guess I should start with the fact that we get pitched a lot of stuff. And uh, I guess part of the debunking process is that we don't allow this to actually get airtime. But just as it is said that no human life is truly wasted because it can always serve as a bad example, we probably should cite a few of these cards we are sent just to show you... Uh, 
well, some bad examples of material to go onto a radio program, which is, I think, why they send me these cards. Although they are apparently in conjunction with certain public events and, and publications. We'll cite, first of all, an updated edition of a book called Liquid Light of Sex. Under the topic of astrology and the rising of Kundalini, sub-headlined The Transformative Powers of Saturn, Chiron, and Uranus, this book, I guess it's a book by Barbara Hand Cloud, delves into these topics. The premise apparently is that Kundalini energy is activated in our 30s, 40s, and 50s during the planetary transits of Saturn, Uranus, and Chiron which rises through the chakras and triggers a cascade of life crises. About all we could say about this is that we have no idea what a planetary transit of these three bodies are, but that it is, in fact, correct to say Uranus, not the alternative pronunciation more commonly used, and that Chiron is apparently a large comet, something like 100 miles across, was discovered and thought to be an asteroid located between Saturn and Uranus. And, I don't know, if you think Chiron is rising through your chakras and triggering a cascade of life crises, you need more hobbies. We're also not going to delve into a, a, a book by Len Caston <laughs> titled Secret Journey to Planet Serpo, described as a true story of interplanetary travel. We are intrigued by the description of this 304-page book, which says that on July 16th in 1965, a massive alien spacecraft landed at the Nevada test site north of Las Vegas, following a plan set in motion by President Kennedy in 1962. The alien visitors welcomed 12 astronaut-trained military personnel aboard their craft for the 10-month journey to their home planet, Serpo, 39 light-years away. According to the author, in November of 2005, former and current members of the Defense Intelligence Agency came forward to reveal the operation. And finally, we're not going to go into um, the secret history of the Anunnaki and their mission on Earth, which apparently an author named Michael Tellinger proposes that, um, well, that the earliest civilizations began in southern Africa with the arrival of the Anunnaki evidently from deep space, 200,000 years ago. They were sent to Earth in search of gold. According to this man's theory, these ancient Anunnaki created the first humans as a slave race, setting in place our traditions of gold obsession, slavery, and the notion of a dominating god. Well, they're all interesting theories, but about all we got to say about them is that they all seem pretty... We're also disturbed to note that in one of our more prominent local publications, we're now seeing more ads for treating your thyroid symptoms with chiropractic. Now, if you want to get a musculoskeletal adjustment and you think a chiropractor is doing a good job, well, go ahead and see him. But uh, as a physician, I have to say that if you've got a thyroid problem, you're not likely to get much benefit from having an adjustment of your spine. Enough said. Another health news, a recent study uh, out of China shows that pollution, which is, as we've talked about in this program, and you've no doubt read about elsewhere, is profound in major Chinese cities. This correspondent had a chance to witness how bad it is in Shanghai, and all I can tell you is it's bad. 
It's not just bad for the people that have to breathe it. It's, uh, it's deadly. Life expectancy in northern China is five and a half years, less than that in the south. And based on a new study examining 20 years of data, is thought to be almost exclusively because of their heavy air pollution. This gets traced back to a rather arbitrary Maoist-era economic policy on cold-fired boilers for Chinese winter heating. North of the Huai River in China, the government provided free coal, while to the south, people were essentially denied central heat. Strange policy, but it did create two experimental groups that could be compared rather nicely with one another and to assess the impact of burning coal on air quality. And the results are pretty much in, and it's bad news north of the Huai River. One of the authors of the study from MIT said, it's not the Chinese government that set out to cause a negative effect on health. That was the unintended consequence of the policy. Based on their modeling, the researchers estimated that the 500 million residents of northern China in the 1990s collectively lost 2.5 billion years from their lives. Holy mackerel. All right, let's do some follow-up items. Looks like the jury's in on something we talked about in the program some while back. The so-called mystery of the fact that whales beach themselves all over the world. And while this was observed in ancient times, there seems to be a lot more of it these days, and a lot of people have noticed that they seem to happen in conjunction with naval sonar tests. Well, according to The Guardian... New research has proven for the first time that whales are indeed fleeing from loud military sonar used by navies to hunt submarines. These studies provide a missing link in the puzzle that has connected naval exercises around the world to mass strandings of whales and dolphins. Part I like best, the U.S. Navy partly funded some of these new studies, but said the findings only showed behavioral responses to sonar, not actual harm in that they were showing that the whales were fleeing the scene of uh, where, where sonar was being used. So I guess if they don't run into a beach or land, then it necessarily proved fatal. Last May, naval activity was found to be the most probable cause of the deaths of at least 26 short-beaked common dolphins in Cornwall. The basic punchline here was that they studied dolphins and whales and found that they were indeed hightailing it. They apparently attached some digital devices to some beaked whales off the coast of Southern California. And when a simulated military sonar signal was sounded at 200 decibels and between 3 to 10 kilometers away, the whales stopped feeding and swimming and then swam rapidly away from the noise and some performed unusually deep and long dives. All right, well, the jury looks in. Now what? Well, a spokesman for the UK's Royal Navy said, The Royal Navy already limits its use of sonar around whales. It does? We're committed to taking all reasonable and practical measures to protect the environment and mitigate effects on marine mammals. This new research will be taken into account in the regular review of Ministry of Defense active sonar mitigation procedures. Which I guess translates to, thanks for the data now, go away. We've talked about light pollution in the past. There's a new book out by Paul Bogard titled The End of Night, which does note that as far back as the late 1970s, our Justice Department concluded that there was no solid evidence that street lighting, one of our greatest global sources of nocturnal illumination, reduces crime. But our light fixation does have dark side effects, wrote Mr. Bogard, who drew upon science and memoir data to show how artificial light contributes to cancer, ecological disruption, obesity, and sleep deprivation. 
Apparently in the book they talk about the pitch black island of Sark, which evidently has taken light pollution seriously. This does remind us of a comment made by uh, one of my neighbors and previous guests in this program, Brent Stanglin, who note that while working out on Cal with Cal Fire crews, which included, I guess, some um, troubled youth who were performing some public service work by fighting fires, uh, one of them came to him and said, what, what, are those, what are those dots up in the sky? To which Brent had to inform him, oh, those are called stars. And make no mistake about it, something has been lost from our night sky when you go up and all you can see is, you know, a star here and a star there. Very sad. And indeed, it just makes no sense to put up street lighting that's uh, illuminating the bottoms of clouds and, uh, you know, the cockpits of overflying aircraft. It just doesn't do us any good down here on the ground. We got a laugh at a headline a couple weeks ago in the B, noting that so far, a week's rains have fallen short of expectations. That, uh, that rain we got there in the end of June. Which uh, wouldn't surprise Radio Parallax listeners, I think, having heard our discussion about Nate Silver's The Signal and the Noise, which talked about how there's a huge bias in news reporting about rain. If you say it's going to rain and it doesn't, nobody's mad at you. If you say it's not going to rain and it does, everybody's mad at you. So how do you think the media in general is going to report it? All right, in the case of twin follow-ups, we have this item uh, from the B, article by Manuel Valdez, talking about how some swine farmers' experiments had led to pot-flavored bacon. Yes, apparently a lot of the, uh, the material uh, involved in the production of uh, cannabis up in Washington State was being, uh, well, fed to pigs. The article quoted one of the uh, practitioners as saying, well, let's see what kind of flavor it gives. So we ran it, and it gave a good flavor. It's like anything else. What you feed them is what they're going to taste like. It's almost like a savory alfalfa-fed cow or alfalfa-fed pig. Noted the article, the meat, though, won't get people high. We thought that was probably a reasonable idea. We still think so. But uh, in the article, they mention a contrary opinion by John McNamara, professor of Washington State University's Department of Animal Science, who says he doesn't find the experiment amusing. They quoted him as saying, of all the crazy things I've seen in my 37 plus years, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. He said that in order to introduce a drug or medicine to feed that's being given to animals that make a part of the food supply, the federal government must sign off on it after extensive review. He added that research has shown that cannabis ingested can be transferred to tissues. So I guess technically he's right. The federal government does step in and say, yes, all of these antibiotics that we're shoving down the gullets of our uh, animals in feedlots are okay. They don't harm the animal. In fact, they make the animal grow faster. That's why they do it. Never mind the fact that it's producing antibiotic resistance in all of these feedlots. So all I can say is if uh, John McNamara finds this to be the craziest thing he's seen in his 37 plus years, he must not get out a lot. I did the disclaimer, right? You did. Good. You know, we're not going to make it to, to the break here on some, uh, some follow-up stuff, so we're going to carry that over in the second segment. But I think I'll close on this item, which is a letter to the Sacramento News and Review by a Stephen Barassa, and, which came in response to uh, Alistair Bland's article in the paper titled, Water Fight, Will Jerry Brown's Tunnel Plan Save or Destroy the Delta? Wrote Stephen, this sounds like a job for James Bond. It would seem that the governor is under the spell of a multinational water conglomerate owned by an evil mastermind. Bond must stop a plan to siphon off all the water from the nation's food basket, the California Delta, and send it to a warmer climate in the south. The sea will push more salt in the Delta, laying waste to rich farmlands. The catastrophe will be blamed on global climate change and bureaucratic bungling. 
Naturally, the villain purchases billions of parcels of tumbleweed desert for $6 per acre and hopes to strike it rich with this transfer of liquid wealth. In the final reel, our governor will be rescued and the good people of California will be spared this calamity. Now, who are they going to pick to play the part of James Bond? All right, we got lots more, including comedic legend Phil Proctor. Stay tuned. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, but there's lots more to come. <laughs>